In Hebrews chapter 12, the scripture says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Father, we thank you for these words in the book of Hebrews about overcoming adversity and moving forward in faith. God, I thank you for the men of this church. And I pray that you would equip us to overcome anything in our lives that is holding us back from picking up our cross and following after Jesus. It could be a trial that one of our men is going through in his home or at work. Lord, you know what that is. Encourage him in the midst of that. And help him to glorify you and make that commitment in his heart to continue growing in his faith in Jesus and being a powerful witness for you. Lord, use this message time today. This is your word. All I can do is speak to hearts, uh, speak to ears. It takes your spirit to speak to hearts. And God, I pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the 1986 New York City Marathon, almost 20,000 runners entered that race. Now what is so memorable from that race is not who won the race, but who finished last. His name was Bob Wyland. He finished in the 19,413th position. Bob completed the New York Marathon in four days, you heard that right, four days, two hours, 47 minutes, and 17 seconds. But what made Bob's case so special was that the fact that he ran the entire 26-mile marathon on his arms. You see, 17 years earlier, while serving in Vietnam, Bob stepped on a mine and he had both of his legs blown off. But despite his adversity, he not only ran his race, he finished his race. He joked saying, you know what, I finished ahead of 300 million other Americans. (laughs) Adversity. Jesus had plenty to say about adversity, didn't he? 
There are different reasons for adversity. Some adversity comes to us from the hands of the unbelieving world. Jesus in John 15 said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And speaking of the future, Jesus said in Mark 13, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And so at the hands of an unbelieving world, you and I can expect our share of adversity and opposition. James goes on to say that there's other reasons you and I go through adversity. Some adversity is from God himself. God may send tests or trials into your life to make you better, to make you more complete and mature in your faith. And that's why James writes, whenever we find ourselves in the midst of adversity, we need to consider it all joy. What we see very clearly in Scripture is that adversity is often the circumstance that the people of God are called upon to face. Now the writer of Hebrews is writing to these folks because they too are facing adversity and some of them because of that they were growing very complacent in their faith. It seems very clear that in all likelihood they were Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and they were facing incredible pressure for doing so. Now, others feel like there might have been some Gentiles in the mix, too. After all, there were God-fearing Gentiles, like Cornelius in the book of Acts, who had been steeped in Jewish faith and Jewish liturgy, and so there might have been people like that. But again, whether Jews or Gentiles, they were acquainted with the Old Testament temple worship. Because there are so many allusions in the book of Hebrews to the Old Testament temple worship and the writer is telling us how everything in the New Covenant is better than that that's in the Old Covenant. But again, they were facing adversity. Now folks, if that's all the information that you and I had on the book of Hebrews, it would be a book that would be very hard for us to identify with. In 2017, we would say we're not Jews. We've not come out of temple worship. How can we relate to a book like this? And we might be tempted to turn the page and hasten on in our studies of the book of James and other books, but that would be a huge mistake. First of all, there are Christians in the church today who are persecuted by their families sometimes for being believers. Students in school may have to endure bullying, sometimes even by professors who mock their faith. A woman may be harassed by her husband because she chooses to get up on a Sunday morning and go to church and he wants to go to the lake or he wants to do something else and so he's continually putting pressure on his wife. Or maybe there's a man who has a Bible sitting on his desk at work and his boss is telling him he better move that Bible. 
And he better cut some corners in the business if he wants to get ahead. You see, folks, all of those are subtle ways that we face persecution. And the writer of Hebrews has a lot to say about that. And what happens oftentimes when we face persecution like that? We are tempted to draw back. We are tempted to shrink back to try to avoid some of the tension and get ourselves out of the midst of the fire. And in the process, we grow a little bit complacent. And so he's writing to them about both of those things. The adversity that they're facing and how they need to press on in spite of it. And they don't need to shrink back. They need to press on and they need to run their race. And men, I want to challenge you to do that uh, today, to do the same. You and I have got to take charge of our spiritual lives. Amen? We've got to take charge. It was Oswald Sanders who said, you are as close to God right now as you want to be. You've got to take charge of your spiritual life. And you've got to press on. Now, how are we going to do that? First of all, this morning, I want you to see that we need to look around. And the key word of this first point in looking around would be motivation. Motivation. Look at what he says there in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have this great cloud of witnesses that is surrounding us. And they are to serve as a motivation to us. Now the word cloud suggests that there are a lot of them. There are many of them. It is a great cloud. And who is this great cloud? It's the Old Testament saints that he's just written about in Hebrews chapter 11. There was Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, and Sarah, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua, and Rahab, and Gideon, and Samson, and David, and Samuel. The list goes on and on and on. In fact, I think if you were, were to read through that whole entire chapter, you would probably come across some of your favorite characters from the Bible that you studied as a kid growing up. Maybe one of those characters was a favorite of yours in vacation Bible school. And what he's saying is that they make up this great cloud of witnesses and their lives and their faith testifies to you and me today. Now folks, I'm sure you've heard people say something like this. You've probably heard somebody say, I know that grandma is up in that cloud of witnesses and she's watching down on me and she's watching every single thing that I do so I'd better behave. Have you ever heard anybody say anything like that? Sure you have. But you know, I don't know of any place in the Bible that tells us that our loved ones are up there in heaven and they're watching every little move that we make. It's not the point that this great cloud of witnesses is looking at us, but it's rather that we look at them. 
that we look at them. How do we look at them? You say they're dead. How in the world can we look at their lives today? We look at their lives from the pages of Scripture. And as we look at their lives from the pages of Scripture, we learn some things about their faith that is very beneficial to us today. What is it that we see? We see that all of them in some way or another faced adversity in their lives. And God was there with them and God helped them and God equipped them and God gave them everything they needed at the moment to overcome whatever it is that they faced. God didn't always deliver them out of the trial, but he was there with them in the midst of the trial. Amen? And that's what we learn from their lives. We see them, and their lives are a great testimony to us. Folks, oftentimes you and I today want the easy assignments. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to be made fun of. We don't want to be rejected. But then we'll come to church the next week and we'll study about Daniel, for instance, who was thrown into the lion's den. And we admire him for that. But let's face it, none of us wants to face something like that. The writer of Hebrews is telling us it's our turn now. They're not the ones in the arena. You and I are the ones in the arena. Their race is over. They've gone on home to heaven and they've received their heavenly reward. They've heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Their earthly lives are over. It's your turn now and it's my turn. And so we need to look at them. We need to look around and look at all of them. And let their lives be a source of motivation to us today. The point is though, you've got to run your race. God wants to work in your life. And the way he worked in their lives is the way he works in our lives. The Bible says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 10 that the ways that God worked in the lives of the Old Testament saints serve as an example and testimony to us today of how he wants to work in our lives. So look around. Men, this week, I want to encourage you to go through Hebrews chapter 11 and study the lives of some of these great men. There was Abel, there was Noah, there was Abraham. On and on we could go. Pick out a few of these names. Read back into the Old Testament wherever their name shows up. Read their stories again and what they went through and the victory that they gained through their faith in God. And let their lives be a motivation to you. Look around. Not only look around, but secondly, I want to point out to you, look within. Look within, and the key word here, I suppose, would be activation. You see, he's saying now there's some things you and I are going to have to do. He says, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily clings to us. 
There's a negative action he states first. And that negative action is we've got to throw off hindrances and sin. And then he states a positive action, which is the main point in this whole passage. The positive action is what? Let us run with perseverance. Folks, I want you to underscore that phrase. Let us run with perseverance. Would you do that? That is the only main verb in this whole entire section. That's his point. Run with perseverance. Everything else is a participle that modifies that main verb of running. In other words, we have, we're having this great cloud of witnesses and they ought to help us to run. We, we've got to lay aside these hindrances and sin, and, and that ought to help us to run. We've got to consider Jesus. We've got to look to him, and that ought to help us run. Again, let us run with perseverance is the main thought here. Well, in order to run, we've got to cast off some stuff. We should be reminded of how the ancient Greek athletes basically stripped down to nothing to run their races in the Colosseum. Dr. David Allen, in his commentary uh, on Hebrews, points out that when the athletes would enter the stadium, they would be wearing these long, flowing, colorful robes. And right before their event, they would take off that robe, and they, there they would stand virtually without a stitch of anything on. Now, why in the world would they do that? Because they didn't want any excess weight on them whatsoever. They were stripping down to the bare essentials. Now other than the marathon, most of their races were three miles at the most. But probably here he has the marathon in mind because Speed is not the issue he's encouraging them to do, but rather endurance. Well, if they're going to take action and run their race, look at what they've got to do. He says, we must look within to cast aside hindrances. Let us lay aside what? Let us lay aside encumbrances. Now, the word encumbrance refers to weights. In other words, he's saying that you and I need to travel light. You and I need to deal with whatever clutter that we have in our lives that is keeping us from being everything that we could be for Jesus Christ now let's be honest a moment do any of you have any clutter in your closets at home you have any closets in your house that you open up that closet and you look in there and you shut the door again you think no I don't want to deal with that well the fact of the matter is plenty of people have clutter in their heart they have some clutter, some encumbrances. And men, if we'll be honest about it, sometimes those encumbrances keep us from being the disciple that Jesus has called us to be. He's not talking about sin at this point. He's going to get to that in a moment. He's simply talking here about things that might weigh us down. 
It might not be bad things in and of themselves, but they are only bad because they're doing what? They're keeping you from the best. Might be a hobby. Anything wrong with hobbies? Absolutely not. Hobbies serve as what? A great release to us. Nothing wrong with hobbies. But what if a man is letting a hobby consume his life to the point that he won't serve in church? He won't study his Bible. He won't get out there and witness. He won't be a part of a church family because all of his free time is eaten up in his hobby or it might be something else in his life. That is an encumbrance in his life that he needs to lay aside so that he can get back in his race. Men, do you have anything like that in your life? And then secondly, we must look within to cast aside sin. This one's more black and white. This one's more obvious. Now we're not just talking about things that can get in the way. Here we're talking about shortcomings. We're talking about transgressions. We're talking about sin. Now I want you to notice something. The sin is not mentioned here, and I think it's intentional so that it'll have the widest possible implication. Now, for, for some of you today, your sin might be laziness. For others, it might be fear. For others, it might be lust. Or it might be gossip. It might be a bad temper. It might be explosive anger. There could be all kinds of sins that you're dealing with in your life that need to be put under the Lordship of Christ. And you need forgiveness and you need help. Now, for these Hebrews, their sin almost all scholars agree, was unbelief. The sin of unbelief. In other words, there was something very definite in their lives. That was the greatest sin for, for Jewish Christians who had left Judaism and converted to Christ. Some of them were being tempted to go back to the temple and to go back to the old ways. But men, put your own sin in the blank there. I want you to notice what he says about this sin. What does this sin do? It entangles. It clings so tightly. You see that in the text? It clings so tightly. I, I read again this week about the strangler fig in Mexico. Starts off as just a little seed that a bird might drop at the base of another tree or somewhere in the trunk or the limbs. And that little seed takes root and it grows into this massive vine. I looked at some of the pictures of it. It was amazing to see what the strangler fig does. It, it, it totally encompasses that tree and grows all the way up to the top and it steals all the sunlight and all the nutrients. It's like a parasite on the host that eventually kills the host. Strangles the life out of the host. Isn't that a picture of sin, how it just wraps around us and entangles us? And it hurts our spiritual life. Sin can be like quicksand. It'll draw us in deeper and deeper and deeper. Somebody said sin takes us further than we ever wanted to go. It keeps us longer than we wanted to stay. And it costs us more than we wanted to pay. 
And it can end up destroying your testimony. I believe we're saved and secure. Once saved, if you're genuinely saved, once saved, always saved. But folks, unconfessed sin in your life that clings around you and grows can nonetheless hurt your testimony. And he's saying, that's got to be laid aside. Weights and encumbrances and sin have to be laid aside. And then he points out here, we must look within and run our race with endurance. The emphasis here is on running. How sad that there are so many professing Christians that come to church week in and week out. They sit in a pew on Sunday morning and then they go home and they never read their Bible. They don't pray. They don't serve anywhere in church and they don't tell other people about Jesus. Men, run your race. And run with endurance. Actually, in the Greek text, the word endurance is moved to the front of the phrase. And the effect that has is to emphasize that it is with endurance that we are to run. We are to run to the very end in spite of setbacks, in spite of trials, in spite of difficulties in life, in spite of disappointments. In fact, the very word for race here is agona. Agony is the word we get from that and it implies there's going to be a great conflict in your Christian uh, faith and in your Christian race. But you've got to keep on running with endurance to the very end. It's always too soon to give up. And I want you to notice what he says about this race. It is the race that is set before you. The race that is set before you, regardless of what other Christians do or don't do that discourage you, you've got a race to run. It is the race that is set before you. In other words, you and I cannot name all the conditions of our race. God has you in your race and God is the one who sets both the agenda and the conditions. Now, men, think of these three things here that have to do with activation. Laying aside hindrances. Laying aside sin. And running with endurance. And now let's put that in the context of the whole book for a moment. I want you to think back a moment to chapter 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2, he reminds us that neglect is dangerous. In chapter 3, he reminds them that a hard heart is likewise dangerous. Now understand something. God is telling us that neglect and hard hearts and, and, and ears that don't listen are very dangerous because all of those things are going to hinder you in your race and bring judgment on your life. In chapter 4, he says we have a sympathetic high priest to help. He's been in our shoes. Chapter 10 points out that we have one another. We're to be in church. We're to be faithful to encouraging one another. We're to be an example in the faith and service. It's like he's saying when you stop and consider everything that God has done for you, you have a Savior. 
You're in the new covenant, not the old covenant. You have a Savior who's your sympathetic high priest. You have other brothers who can help you. It's like he's saying, you're even more without excuse. And it's even more serious. Do you realize it's even more serious? Sin in the new covenant. We read about sin in the old covenant where God swallowed the ground, uh, opened the ground, swallowed people, and we think, wow, we're glad he doesn't do stuff like that anymore. Aren't you glad he doesn't do stuff like that anymore? We read those sins in the Old Testament and we think, wow. And we don't see God doing things like that today. But do you realize what the writer of Hebrews is saying? The writer of Hebrews is saying, in light of everything that God has done for you and me today in the new covenant, sin is even more inexcusable. And it's even more dangerous. Because to whom much is given, much is required. So look within, activation, lay everything aside that's hindering you and run with endurance and finish your race. And then a third thing, look up. And the key word here is inspiration. Inspiration. He says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured uh, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Inspiration is found in looking to Jesus. Motivation comes from looking to those saints in Hebrews chapter 11, but it's actually Jesus that we're to keep our gaze upon. Jesus is our supreme model, and he's to be our inspiration. And so what he says here, that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus... The words suggest a single eye looking only in one direction. In fact, it implies deliberately looking away from everything else so that you can more intensely focus on one thing. Men, you and I are to be fixated upon Jesus Christ. We're to concentrate on Him. Absolutely nothing is ever to compete with Christ for your affections and your focus. We are to live for His glory. Amen? He's the author of faith. He's the one who saved you. He's not only the author of our faith, but He's the finisher. Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. God finishes what he starts. Aren't you glad of that? But what you and I need to do is keep our eyes on him. You know what, folks? I've known of believers 
I won't, I won't call any names. I, I'm thinking of people I've known in the past. I've known believers. Something happened in their life. They take their eyes off of Jesus because they've put their eyes on men and they got disappointed. And so they ended up taking their eyes off of Jesus. And you know what? It's like they went out in a spiritual wasteland. They got away from the Christian fellowship and they just went in circles for ten, wasted 10 years of their lives. Isn't that sad? We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. And then he says here in verse 3 that we've got to consider him. This is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. It's absent from the Septuagint altogether. But it's found in ancient papyri. It was a mathematical term that referred to adding up every single little instance of opposition and persecution that Jesus faced. The writer is saying when you're about to grow discouraged, when you're about to give up, you need to consider Jesus. You need to look at him. You need to add up everything that Jesus faced. Every bad word that was ever said to him, every mockery, every lashing that he received, that crown of thorns, all of the rejection, the crowds yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and finally nailing him to the cross. You need to add up mathematically, as it were, everything in the life of Jesus that he faced in terms of opposition, and then ask yourself a question, have you ever faced anything like that? And the answer is what? No. No. And so when you're thinking about giving up, you need to consider Him. Look to Him. Don't take your eyes off of Him. Stay in the race. He endured the cross for the salvation it would, would bring. The end result was joy to Jesus. He died in a shameful way because crucifixion was a shameful and a humiliating way to die. But Jesus despised the shame. He didn't focus on the shame of the cross and allow it to prevent him from going there. He looked beyond the shame to the salvation that it would bring. Out of the joy of seeing countless multitudes reconciled with the Father, he endured the cross and he ended up sitting down at the right hand of the Father and he's there today to make intercession for you and me. The fact that he sat down at the right hand of the Father means that the exaltation of Jesus Christ is complete. He's the victor. And he sits there and you're in the arena now. You're in your race. And guess what? Not only do we have these Old Testament saints for motivation. Not only do we have one another to pray for us and help us and encourage us. But we have him knowing that our advocate is at the right hand of the Father. And he is interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit is also interceding for us. And so we can keep running. We can run and run and keep running until we finish our race. And then when we finish our race and we're called home, there's Abraham and Noah 
and Simon Peter, and there's Paul. But best of all, there's Jesus saying, welcome home. Welcome home. Men, run your race and finish your race. So like the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he said to Timothy, Timothy, the end of my life is over. My life has been poured out like a drink offering. It's over, but I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. I've run my race. And he said in the future there's in store for me that glorious inheritance and that crown. And Paul knew that he was going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Run your race. Finish. Look around. Look within. But most of all, look up. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer for a moment? Men, is there anybody, anybody in here today who needs to get in the race? The only qualifying that you have to do is to be born again. Has God worked that miracle of the new birth in your life? Have you humbled yourself before Him and come to Him in faith and repentance? It's God's work. Salvation is always His work because you and I were dead in trespasses and sins. He initiates, but have you come to Him in in repentance and faith? And saying, Lord, would you convert me? Would you make me a new creation in Christ? Would you begin your good work in me? There may be some men in here this morning that need to come forward and say, Pastor, pray for me. That's what I need. I need to be changed. I need to be born again. I've grown up religious. I've grown up in church. I've even done all the right things. I've been baptized, joined the church, done this and that. But I've never been born again. You need Christ. Come to Him. Are there Christians here this morning who need to get back into the race? You've grown lazy in your race. You're half in and half out. Your heart's not in it anymore. Ask God to renew the passion and stir the heart once again. And men, some of you in here this morning have some hindrances, some weights, even some sin that you know You need to lay aside. When I was talking about that a moment ago, there's not a doubt in my mind that the Holy Spirit brought some things to your mind. Lay it aside. It's not worth it. Have you grown discouraged? Do you need to look to Jesus afresh and anew today? Quit looking at men. The best men that you know will disappoint you if you keep your eyes on them. But Jesus will never disappoint you. Father, work your work 
in our hearts so that we might all finish our race with endurance and hear your divine approval and blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.